0: It's never about context being in or out, the question is what the relevant context
1: is. How concepts and theories are created within specific contexts.
0: Seteris non paribus, meaning all other things not being equal. Welcome to Seteris non paribus, the history of economic thought podcast. I'm Reinhard Schumacher, and I'm hosting this episode together with Juana Costa. The guest of this episode is Bruce Cordwell. Whom Juan and I interviewed in October 2017 during the conference of the Institute for New Economic Thinking in Edinburgh. Booth is a research professor of economics and the director of the Center for the History of Political Economy, or Hope Center, at Duke University. In the first part of this episode, we will talk with Booth about the Hope Center and the Economist Papers Archive, which is housed at the David M. Rubenstein Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Duke University. It contains the papers of many economists, including winners of the Nobel Memorial Prize. In the second part of the interview, we will discuss Bruce's current work on an intellectual biography of Friedrich Hayek, which he is co-authoring with hans Jo Klausinger. Check our website www.saturisnonparibus.net for further links and information about the topics of this episode. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. So, let's start with the interview by Booth explaining the idea behind establishing the Hope Center at Duke University nearly ten years ago.
1: So the name of the center is actually the Center for the History of Political Economy, and the reason that we chose that particular name for the center is that the journal History of Political Economy has been published at Duke since 1969. So we were building on an already very strong program within the history of economic thought at Duke. It, it uh, had three professors, Crawford Goodwin, uh, Roy Weintraub, and Neil DeMarkey, uh, who were professors there for many, many years. Um, the journal, uh, as I said, was started there in 1969. And in the 19, uh, I think, late 1980s, the archival collection uh, really started to be built. So uh, at the now called the Rubenstein uh, Library at Duke, there's a marvelous uh, collection of economist papers. Uh, I think there are 14 Nobel Prize winners papers there now. Uh, there's papers that the American Economic Association uh, includes papers of people like Carl Manger, uh, Oscar Morgenstern, Don Patinkin, So it's just a a really nice collection, and it's growing uh, uh, a lot. Uh, It's grown a lot since the Center started. So there was already a presence, indeed, a a critical mass of of stuff going on at Duke uh, before the Center started in 2008. And um, I was then teaching at the University of North Carolina Greensboro, and thought, well, um, it would be great to add to the already uh, other things that were being done at Duke uh, and I looked around was able to raise some outside money uh, that allowed the center to be established and Moved over there in 2008. So it's been almost 10 years now. This will be our 10th year. So the programs that we've Been, uh, been able to add due to the presence of the center is first of all the fellowship program and Both of the people who are interviewing me are or are graduates of the fellowship program. So you know uh, what what it's all about, but in case the listeners don't uh this is a program in which people come for a semester or an academic year. Uh, we typically bring in six to ten people. There's mostly they are junior people, but we often have uh, two or three senior people come as well. They join the group that's already at Duke, which is the Duke faculty as well as any graduate students that we have. There are faculty also another related disciplines who sometimes attend some of our events and we meet once a week uh, always for lunch sometimes at lunch uh, it's informal and we just have a chat other times uh, people particularly fellows are presenting work in progress and about every other week uh, we have an outside speaker come in who uh, delivers a paper at the workshop so uh, it becomes a community that's formed each year Uh, Some people are parts of the community going forward all the way through. Others are the ones who are are coming in each year or each semester. And the point is to try to uh, help people uh, develop whatever research they're working on, uh, present papers, uh, make papers that are good better, uh, get them ready for publication. Uh, Sometimes people are working on books or other sorts of larger projects. And uh, it's just a way to experience uh, how to write (laughs) a good paper in the history of economics and there's lots of ways to write good papers uh, depending on the types of topics and subjects you, you're interested in and you'll see a variety of approaches uh, through the people who pass through the center. So it really I think is a quite uh, a rich experience for the people who come in. So that's one of our programs that's aimed at trying to promote research in the, in the history of economic thought. Uh, we also want to try to promote the teaching of the history of economic thought so our primary vehicle there is, is a summer institute. Uh, we've won, run one, um, I think, every year, uh, maybe eight eight or nine, eight or nine summer institutes anyway we're up to now uh, since the center was was started. And this is anything from uh, one to two to three week short courses in, in the history of economic thought is the way we've run some of them. Sometimes we've run them uh, for other faculty members. The ones that were sponsored by the National Endowment for the Humanities were not targeted at graduate students in economics, but rather professors uh, teaching in the humanities uh, to bring people together to read, for example, Smith's Wealth of Nations or the Theory of Moral Sentiments, excerpts from it, and see how different people in different disciplines might approach a text like that and then have conversations about it and often quite, quite rich conversations. Uh, The uh, standard, uh, there is no standard uh, Summer Institute, we try to change it up each year, Uh, but we've had a number of of, uh, professors in from around the country who come to give uh, lectures, to lead discussions. The one that we're going to be running in 2018, uh, just for some advertisement, will be uh, different from the ones we've run up until now. We'll have, a, it will only last six days. In the morning, uh, there will be time for six uh, invited professors to talk about their work. So uh, uh, Phil Murawski and Eddie Nick Kau have just written a book about uh, knowledge and information. So they'll talk about their book one day. Wade Hans will come in to talk uh, about uh, some of his own research. I'll talk a little bit about my research on Hayek. Uh, we have Mary Poovey, who will talk about uh, doing intellectual history within their fields. And then finally, two of the graduates from uh, from our Duke PhD program, Matt Panhans and John Singleton, uh, will talk about research that they're doing and perhaps kind of be examples of people doing successful research. So each morning will be devoted to a discussion by uh, of, the, of the work by those people I mentioned. And in the afternoons, we'll have uh, maybe three or four uh, presentations by... Um, people who have applied to the Summer Institute, who have a paper that they're trying to write, and whatever stage their paper is in, uh, we'll just workshop it. So we'll have a a mini uh, Duke workshop, only extend it over Mm -hmm. a number of different papers over over six days. And uh, this is modeled on a a very successful one that Till Dupe uh, had done at the University of Montreal in 2015, quite independent from Duke, and we saw how successful that was, so we invited him uh, to organize it. So he he and I will be will be kind of leading the uh, the, the summer institute. One final program that I, I would mention is is uh, uh we have a uh, su- we call it summer in the archives because typically it has taken place in the summer, although more recently we've been extending it even even further. Where where uh, someone will come into uh, the archival collection that we've got there and work under the direction of a university archivist uh, to uh, examine, uh, put together papers. Uh, often these are, are collections that have not been uh, cataloged before or have only been very loosely cataloged. So the idea is to is to arrange things, uh, to write up finding guides. And uh, Reinhard, you, you did this. Uh, you didn't, no. uh, I don't think, on But uh, it's a really a very uh, good experience to learn how an archive works, but it also allows you to get in and see materials that perhaps other people haven't seen yet. And... Uh, about how to do papers and I know that that's been very helpful for, for, for Reinhardt uh, to be sure. Um, I should mention that the Center, although it, we, we our mission is to promote uh, teaching of and research in the history of economics, but it's not exclusively economists that we have been drawing to the Center and indeed we, we like to emphasize the interdisciplinarity of it because I think frankly uh, yeah, we're, we're trying to get history of thought back into the economics curriculum, but we're also recognizing that making allies, as it were, in related disciplines is another way to also uh, help the the field prosper. And I think we, just as when I talked about how the NEH uh, summer institutes have been Uh, really enlightening in terms of looking at different ways of looking at text. When you get people who are from a a variety of disciplines, I think you often get some very rich uh, interactions. So that's one of the things that we we also like to promote.
0: And probably there's also an annual conference, a HOPE conference. Sorry, you're exactly uh, right. scientific conference.
1: Right, so every April um, and this has been going on since the Carl Menger conference was the very first one in the late uh, 1980s. Uh, where people are invited often a year and a half, two years before uh, to present, create and present a paper at the conference and then a selection of those papers are gathered together in a conference volume that comes out as a hardback book, uh, as a supplement to the history of political economy, the journal. And uh, so we have, we plan these uh, two or three years in advance uh, uh, each year, so it's uh, it's quite a production and that guarantees that we really get good papers for those for those conferences.
0: So what are the topics of the upcoming two conferences? So the, the
1: one that we just had was on development uh, as seen particularly from, development economics as seen particularly from the periphery as opposed to the from the, the core, that was the distinction that was made by the organizers. Uh, the one that is coming up uh, next, uh, next April is on uh, Socialist economies and economics, as seen from within the socialist countries. So, what sorts of developments, as opposed to kind of the Cold War view of there's us and then there's those people doing stuff over there, trying to see what was going on in the various countries behind the Iron Curtain um, and other places uh, uh, to develop economics. Um, so, until Dupé and and I forget who else, uh, but someone else is is organizing that one.
0: It's Ivan Baidyev.
1: We we bring in people from the outside to set up the conference, and then we host it. And one of the professors at, at Duke will uh, will be kind of the contact person that, that shepherds the thing through to uh, to the ultimate volume.
0: Maybe back to the Economist papers and the mm-hmm. archive. Sure. How did it? It was before your time, but how did it start? <clears throat> Why did the Economist papers end up? In the middle of North Carolina, sure. as opposed to maybe a larger city.
1: Yeah, so not every economics department values the history of economics, and there are places that I will not name <laughs> uh, where uh, people who have retired, and sometimes in some cases the the econo- famous <coughs> economists has actually died, and there widow, for example, would say, well, to the university, do you want my papers? And they don't have any any place to put them. So mm-hmm. uh, in one case, apparently, uh, the archivist from Duke uh, arrived at the person's house, and they were getting ready to throw the papers into the trash. So <laughs> it, you're, you're really doing rescue work in some cases. Uh, uh, but as a critical mass, uh, uh, developed, people started to say, well, this is a great place to, to deposit your papers because we know that researchers come there on a regular basis. So if you, and everyone's interested in their own legacy, of course, so if you are interested in your own legacy and you want people to to look at your papers, you it's a great place to put them. So it, it really is one of those things that builds on itself once it gets started. Carl uh, Manger's papers, uh, it was some sort of strange story. It was his granddaughter who... Uh, decided to uh, to donate the, the papers and and I'm not sure why they didn't go somewhere else. But once they they came, that was that was the first conference. And in fact, I was I was when I was teaching at U N C Greensboro, and they invited me over to to be the uh, the conference director for that conference. And that actually was the one that kicked off the both the annual conferences, but also uh, I think really was starting to establish Duke as a place to to deposit papers.
2: Do you approach living economists that you know that are important and will be studied heavily after they, they yes, die?
1: Yes, absolutely. So we have a meeting with the uh, the chief archivist who's in charge of the uh, Economist Papers Archive, uh, and we go through a list of names, okay. and uh, we will sometimes suggest names uh, to the person, the archivist, uh, to contact. She will mention names and say, Do you... Do any of you happen to know this person personally through one connection or another? If so, can you contact them? So it's not it's not real systematic, but it's pretty systematic. I mean, it's a it's a yearly meeting, and it's borne fruit. Uh, mm-hmm. I, and we can't I can't really name the ones who are in the pipeline because until we actually have the papers, you don't want to to say something like that in public. But it's it we we are mm-hmm. actively pursuing some great.
0: But whose and papers are already there that are still alive? <coughs> there are probably some examples. Lucas.
1: Yeah, uh, Vernon Smith's papers are there. Okay. Uh, uh I'll tell you, getting Paul Samuelson's papers probably did quite a... You know, we we pursued him for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And we got Bob Solow's papers and I think that probably tipped Samuelson to be interested in, in, in finally uh, committing. And he committed, you know, before he died obviously, but not, not that long before he died. But uh, once they got there, I mean, the, the, ar- the, the, the archival librarians who run the, the reading room have jokingly said that it's become the Paul Samuelson room because it, you know, just so many people are coming to, to, awesome. to utilize the, those papers. And it's, it's, it's just a very nice collection. And as both of you know, since you've worked in it, the people who work there are very professional and you, you have great access. They're very helpful.
2: Have you had any rejections? Any people saying, no, we don't want our archives to go there yes. specifically? Yes,
1: we have. Uh, I'll go ahead and say that, yes, we pursued uh, Joe Stiglitz quite, quite uh, aggressively. But he... Columbia also has a great mm-hmm. archival collection. And he, being very much still alive, I think he wanted to have access to his own papers, uh, even mm-hmm. if he deposited them. I think he was ready to get rid of a bunch of papers, but still wanted to be able to have access. So it was a reasonable uh, uh, rejection um, th- on his part. But yeah, we we thought, well, if we had if we had his papers and Samuelson's papers, that starts to to really get a nice uh, a nice contemporary collection going. But we've got we've got some other, as you know, other great papers.
0: So and now there are some especially for young scholars who are not sure what they will write their PhD about. Are there the, some papers that have not been touched and that would look very promising that you would recommend somebody to go there and look, check them out?
1: So I think uh, what I would recommend is uh, to just simply go online because you can see exactly what's there. And if there's, because some people might like macroeconomics, some might like experimental and there's lots, of, lots of stuff there. And you can, for the ones that have been Processed, you can actually see what various boxes contain to some extent. But I think that th- it actually is a very good way to to get your first introduction to an archive is to go o- online and take a look mm-hmm. because you'll see what finding guides are like, and you'll see that for some of them they're they're very incomplete, so there's still work to be done there. So that would be a a signal that that might be one that might be available to for the new investigator.
0: Are you actually getting? More papers than than you can process at the time. Are there many that take like <coughs> years until they get sorted and categorized, or
1: certainly they they probably have more papers than they have people to process them. Uh, but our contribution, again, of the center of providing people who will work with the archivist uh, certainly has helped, and we're constantly pursuing grant money that would help support the library. So for example, we're, we're just now um, trying to complete a grant that will provide funding for a digital archivist. Because if you look at anyone who is working today who donates their papers, they're not going to be donating physical papers. They're going to be donating basically uh, uh, hard drives from a collection of computers. And there's probably going to be about a 10 or 15 year gap Uh, in the history of economics in terms of which before you've got papers afterwards you've got computer information that's on a computer but this gap between when people uh, weren't saving the stuff or computers were crashing and the stuff is not under university archive or, or, or whatever the universities weren't keeping it either now I think most universities are keeping everything uh, so uh, you're able to get stuff even if somebody's computer has died. It's somewhere on a, also backed up on the university system. But uh, there were there was probably a period in there when when things are going to not be there. <laughs> so it'll be a be interesting construction job that future historians will need to to do.
2: Well, the other interesting thing that we would like to talk to you about, going back to the papers that are already there, we were wondering whether there is some sort of um, pre-sorting process before the archives get at a Duke. If uh, the stuff that actually gets deposited has been sometimes sorted by the, the owners of the archive, mm-hmm. and like the, the decision of what material to let uh, sure. the, the university have, and how, how do you approach that complexity of, of the archives?
1: Yeah, so I've never been involved directly with that. So everything that I have to say is just my supposition. And I would think that people probably fall in various categories. And some people are just happy to get rid of their stuff, and they just have it in boxes, and they send it. And they don't really go through it to find out what's in there. And certainly, once it arrives, the archivist, the first step is to identify things that might be more personal, or anything that has student records, which according to uh, the Duke archivists, they're, they're not supposed to keep those. Anything that has your student uh, uh, grade books with grades, they just get rid of those. They don't, they don't keep them. And if the person doesn't want them, then they just get destroyed. Um, but, uh, but in terms of self-censoring, uh, as it were, that people might go through, you don't really know ahead of time. Whether they're doing that, so it's it's pretty hard to to know. Uh, I guess you would get a clue if if you just had boxes of stuff that had been obviously taken from an attic uh, and and not opened and and, and gone through. Uh, that they would be more uh, you know, less likely to have been uh, gone through with the with the eye of of getting rid of embarrassing uh, things. I I know with my own uh, papers I correspondence is always where you're going to find very interesting things. Mm-hmm. I've just kept all my correspondence. I think it's 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 fun. But then again, I'm an historian, so <laughs> I, I like keeping stuff. You, know.
0: you might not put every... Correspondence than in the archive at the, at some point, ah. especially private correspondence. Well, but it's kind of interesting because in the 80s, 90s, yeah, yeah. archival material was not really consulted much by historians of economics. That's right. By most of them. That's right. And t- no, there was a turn and it seems like that archival material is seen as gold. And it's n- often not really reflected that archives are constructed themselves. Yes, so yes, it's, of course. N- mm-hmm. it's kind of s- maybe the pendulum it's swung too yeah, far not in, not a, in a, the, a, in a, the other like direction. The, uh, Um, Somehow, that seems sometimes the case at least.
1: It's one piece of evidence. And like any other piece of evidence, it has to be uh, dealt with uh, carefully, just like oral reports of of people, their memories. I mean, uh, and that's what makes doing this kind of history of thought type of work uh, so interesting, because you need to be always aware of these things, but on the other hand, you are getting insights into uh perhaps how someone was thinking at a particular point in time when they have made certain decisions about research directions or certain ways of putting together a paper or certain ideas that suddenly become salient to them, that we later think might be important, and just going back and seeing the context in which that was created to the extent that you're able to from the record, uh, sometimes you're not able to at all, you know Some, but other times you you can. And it also helps you get uh, some sense of the networks of people that are involved. You know, going away from the great man theory and going more towards a network of scholars that are interacting with each other. Uh, that can also change your, the way that you that you think. I think of the the current you know caricature of the relationship, for example, between uh, a person that I study, Hayek, and and John Maynard Keynes. Um, if you just Listen to rap videos, or, or 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 you know just take a uh, take one of their texts, and then juxtapose it against another text. You you get a certain image, but if you actually see their correspondence and uh, understand that, for example, Keynes got Hayek rooms during World War II, and that Hayek supported Keynes's "How to Pay for the War," wrote a very uh, a, a, a review that was uh, that was praising him up and down. I mean, they, they had a relationship that's quite different from the one that you would get if you're just reading the texts. And so I think that is a, a change that's taken place since the 80s and 90s, but I think it's contextualized and made much richer our understanding of, of the economists that are looking at... We were just at a session uh, prior to this podcast where that was on Adam Smith, where uh, Craig Smith, a scholar from Scotland, uh, gave a wonderful description of the interaction the complementarity between Smith's theory of moral sentiments and wealth of nations that I think he made the very important point that if economists just simply read one text they're going to miss the larger picture and often the larger picture is so much richer and so much uh, it, it really gives you a reason to think well yeah Smith really is the writer is a writer that we should that we should be looking at uh, uh, 200 and some odd years later.
0: Just one last uh, thing about the, the HOPE Center, There's, sure. it actually has a, also a homepage where you find resources on curriculums and others, maybe you want to sure. mention that? So, I've, well?
1: I've described some of the programs, uh, but it's much easier simply to go to our website. And if you just simply Google Center for the History of Political Economy, Duke University, you'll find it. Uh, you can see the events that take place, you'll see how to apply for a fellowship program, uh, you'll see about our summer institutes. And the very final tab on the right-hand side is resources. And it uh, it contains syllabi by people who have taught history of thought classes. It contains class exercises that people do, paper topics that they've assigned, not just for a history of thought class, but for specific classes on topics within the history of thought. So it, it's meant to be a resource uh, page uh, for people who might want to try to teach a course in the history of economics and are daunted by, by the prospects of how, how should I set this up, what sort of readings should I choose. In addition to that, it has links to lots of other resources, the History of Economics Society, various societies around the world that that uh, that also support work in the history of economics, uh, uh, you know, li- places that you can access primary literature online, uh, all, all sorts of resources that I think would be useful to anybody who has an interest From any angle, from doing research to teaching to just having a casual interest in history of economics, I think it would be a a useful place to go.
0: You are not only the director of the (coughs) Hope Center, but also a scholar on your own right, and you're especially working on Friedrich Hayek. So how did you come to study Hayek? What was your first interest in in Hayek?
1: Yeah, so actually I didn't come to study Hayek directly. I, I was interested in economic methodology early on in my career, Uh, and I won't bore you with the long story about how I got interested in in methodology, Uh, but it was with a a certain dissatisfaction with with my graduate training in in contrast to my undergraduate training. I really liked my undergraduate training. I thought the graduate training was sterile and not insightful. So um, in any event, I was interested in economic methodology. I did my dissertation uh, on the subject. It, It eventually turned into a book called uh, Beyond Positivism, Economic Methodology in the 20th Century. And I actually finished, uh, although I wrote the dissertation, I turned the dissertation into a book during a postdoc year at New York University in 1981-82. And I was there at NYU uh, with a group uh, headed by Israel Kirzner, but a a number of others were there, uh, that were studying Austrian economics. And I was interested in them because they're taking an approach to economics that's quite different from the mainstream. And given that I was interested in the methodology of economics, I was interested in groups that were able to articulate their methodological principles uh, and why they they differed from the mainstream. And So it was a natural attraction. It was while I was at NYU that I um, came to learn a bit more about Hayek. Actually, Mises was the one who I knew the most about because he had very distinctive methodological views that I was interested in and uh, uh, it was there that I first got interested in Hayek um, but I was always interested in him uh, as a person who was contributing to uh, how to do economics scientifically or you know th- those sorts of methodological issues that 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 he took up and uh, this led me ultimately to a uh, a book uh, on Hayek called Hayek's Challenge published in 2004 the subtitle is uh, an intellectual biography of F.A. Hayek but the subtitle should have been and was uh, F.A. Hayek: uh, Hayek's Challenge the F.A. Hayek and the Limits of Social Science because that was what I think he was talking about in in his methodological contributions but the uh, marketing people at Chicago Press said this New subtitle will sell more, which it did probably, but on the other hand, I also got reviewers who said, <laughs> this is really about it. Hayek's methodology. It's not a full intellectual biography. So anyway, that that book uh, led me to become the general editor of the Hayek Collected Works. I had, in uh, in the process of writing that book, had edited two of the volumes in the Hayek Collected Works, but the the larger general editorship was then Held by uh, a man named Stephen Kresge, and he asked me if I wanted to take over for him, and I've been doing that. And most recently, um, I've been working on a full biography of Hayek. So this will be something that is goes beyond just intellectual biography. It will include his his intellectual contributions, but also try to talk about his his role as a public intellectual, you know, political interventions, letters to the newspaper you know, as, a, as a figure that way, as well as a, his, his personal life, etc. So a much different sort of project from anything I've ever done before. Uh, I have a co-author, uh, excellent uh, scholar, Hans-Jörg Klausinger uh, from Vienna, uh, who we're collaborating together. And we're, we're right at the stage now where we're each writing up uh, bits and pieces and uh, and then we'll have to try to see if we can integrate them.
2: Uh, <laughs> and we'll see how that goes, but that's that's in the future. yeah and, uh, going back to the comment you made about the, the session about Smith, what are the difficulties about writing about somebody who means so much for a lot of people? like sure. Hayek has a lot of followers yep. and a lot of people who. I will not say hate him, but yeah, no, don't like do it no, him yeah. very much. Mm-hmm. So it's a very complicated person to talk about because mm-hmm. you'll find that some people just don't care about what you say. They mm-hmm. just hate him or love him anyway. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Is, there any, is there any particular difficulty in writing about somebody it's like that?
1: Not a difficulty. It's, it's one of the, the biggest attractions because you know that there are so many people who have very strong opinions uh, that are divergent opinions from each other's. So mm-hmm. Some love, some hate and um, and as a result there's so much garbage that's out there that people think is true about about the person now to be sure history of economics is always an interpretive exercise but not all interpretations are correct <laughs> and there are some that are easily uh shown to be uh based on bad readings or no readings at all just just you know everybody knows sorts of readings and so uh, certainly one of the roles of the historian of economics is to is to correct for those bad readings and try to present something that, that at least is evidence-based that you can defend mm-hmm. as a reading. Now, you can still end up having divergent readings, but uh, typically the ones that are evidence-based, it's fun then to see the two proponents or three proponents uh, battle it out in terms of trying to, to interpret them. So actually it's one of the attractions. One of the okay. things that attracted me to Hayek was that that, yes, I knew this is a controversial figure, and let's see if we can get to the bottom of what made him tick and what what his ideas actually were.
0: You're guaranteed some good reviews and some bad reviews, Sure. independent of the content. Sure, sure.
1: Makes it all fun.
0: But also, it's funny because you, you have so many um, economist papers at Duke, Yes. but Hayek's are not among them, and you are working on Hayek?
1: Well, Hayek's original papers are at the Hoover Institution. That's correct. But when I became the general editor, in fact, the microfilm of those papers at Hoover uh, were sent to me. And so they get sent to me, and they, I send them to the library. So we do have a microfilm collection <laughs> of Hayek's papers at Duke, but it's it's not as good as the as the real thing. I mean, anyone who's worked in archives knows it's much better to have the actual piece in your hands. And some things don't microfilm very well, it has to be said. So some some of the pieces are not... Or It's better to go to the to the Hoover because that you can actually perhaps read them <laughs> a little better.
0: Isn't there any... Um, because Hayek is a very important figure, isn't there any attempts to just digitalize his whole papers and make them accessible to everyone? That would be you know such that?
1: a wonderful thing. And one of the big problems, though, is that, as I said, the most... Imp- usually the the most interesting part of an archival collection is the person's correspondence yes. with lots and lots of figures and so even so I'm the person who would give permission to digitally digitally reproduce all of Hayek's own writings as the general editor I'm also given the task by the family by the estate of being the, the, the literary executor, as it were, uh, so the permission giver for publishing things that are, had previously unpublished. Even if I did that, all of the other sides of the correspondence, all the other people, Fritz Machlup, Karl Popper, you'd have to get their permission too to put mm, all that online. Okay. So you can't do it. You basically just can't do it. it uh, it's an intellectual property rights
0: issue. It's the, the copyright for the letter that somebody sends you. Is from the by the, the sender has the copyright, not the receiver.
1: The sender or his estate or her estate. Yep. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a matter of of clearing all of that, and particularly if it's you know if it's a a, a big project uh, that someone's undertaking, you'd you'd have to get it would become a much bigger project because you'd have to have. A team of people basically going and clearing all those copyrights now I don't copyright law is interesting there are vagaries to it so sometimes it can be argued well if you're if you're trans if, if the if the reproduction is transformative mm-hmm. in some way there might be ways to get around that but it's it's tricky and I think it just is the reason why these you know because we live in a de- age of digitization and you do see things getting digitized, but they're often ancient manuscripts, you know, collections from the medieval period. There's some beautiful illuminated manuscripts that are out, out there on, on, on the web. But not yeah, contemporary stuff, not so much. So
2: just going briefly back to the, to the center and the archives collection at Duke. So there is no plan to digitize part or a whole collection of The Economist's papers? Not that I know of. Okay.
1: Not that I know of. Do you know something? No. no. I was okay. wondering
2: if, that's what's maybe, if that was maybe a project, a future project. or
1: So when I said that, that we were trying to get money for a digital archivist, it would be someone who would be able to take the information that is now only available on somebody's phone. computer or whatever, uh, server somewhere, and make it so that someone who comes to the archive would be able to access it in mm-hmm. an easy way. And I'm not sure exactly how they do that. Um, but and there's not that many places that have them but it would particularly given the kind of collection that we've got where it's a lot of 20th century, now 21st century economists, it, it's absolutely essential so.
2: If Let's say that the, the copyright was not an issue let's say that everybody agrees do you think that it would be a good thing to have every archive uh, digitized or do you think that something is lost with the the easiness of just looking for a specific thing that you need and then moving on?
1: Well, that's a broad philosophical question, (laughs) which I'm not very good at. But I would say, certainly from my perspective, I think it would be marvelous um, because it would save physical trips. But on the other hand, I have to say, uh, I never feel quite so alive as I do when I'm in an archive you're still a real historian. If you use digitized stuff, I wouldn't feel bad. But it's good to have the, the feel of the papers in your hand. Absolutely. I, I, I absolutely agree with that. So,
0: Back to your biography yeah, that you're writing, you're probably using a lot of archival material.
1: So I've been working with Hans-Jörg Klausinger for more than three years on gathering materials for the biography, and when I say gathering materials I mean that uh, he did uh, substantial work in archives in uh, Austria and Germany and other places in Europe to look into things like uh, Hayek's family records, uh, his school day records, uh, university records, uh, that sort of thing. Um, Meanwhile I was interviewing uh, family members. So Hayek's family included his son and daughter and his son's wife. Uh, His son died in 2004, and the son's wife Eska Hayek died uh, just this past year, just a few months ago actually. His daughter Christine is still alive, so most of my interviews were with Christine, who was a marvelous uh, person to interview. She just was very straightforward, uh, very forthright. We went to the home that they had in the suburbs of London, um, uh, beautiful uh, 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 home that they, that they lived in while she was young, so she was able to point out uh, landmarks that she remembers from when she was a child and riding bicycles, and she gave me family photos. So, uh, really gathered a lot of information. Uh, unfortunately, it turns out that the letters that the family was able to provide me with was very incomplete in terms of Hayek himself. So in the Hayek archives we can see his professional correspondence and he's uh, often answering questions, uh, uh, talking about his research, so you can really get some insight uh, into a person that way. Uh, Particularly among some of his colleagues from Vienna as well as with some early correspondence with Robbins, you can see him uh, gossiping and joking and uh, uh, being, you know, uh, a regular person. So that's helpful. But you know, we we figured family correspondence would also give us a, a very different dimension that we were really looking for. And unfortunately, his his uh, he his first wife and his second wife very little of correspondence to them. Well, of course, most of the time he was with them, so the only correspondence that would have been available, would have been when he was traveling. Uh, And then his children, uh, well, there is correspondence there, but again, it's only their correspondence. So in other words, he kept their letters to him. So we have uh, something I should mention. He got divorced in 1950 and married his childhood sweetheart soon thereafter. So the first wife, we have her letters from 1926 through 1949, 50, Second wife, we have a few letters that she sent him when he was traveling or for whatever reason in the 50s and 60s. Now, you can understand, the first wife didn't keep his letters because they got divorced. And the second wife, he was mostly with the second wife, so there weren't letters to her. The letters to the children, it's hard to know why they got rid of them, but they did. Uh, Maybe it's not hard to know why they got rid of them. Mm -hmm. After all, if your father suddenly decamps to America with and marries somebody other than your mother, you stay in contact with him, uh, but perhaps you don't, you don't keep his letters. But in any event, we don't have those letters. So the only letters that we actually have from Hayek are the letters that he wrote home to his mother and father during World War I, when he was a soldier on the uh, Italian front. And we have a wonderful set of letters from his first trip overseas when he went to... New York City in 1923-24 and he just so he's at age 23 he's born in 1899 so he's a 24 year old person Mm -hmm. uh, writing back home about what it's like to be in New York and and they're marvelous they're wonderful they're they're entertaining it's a side of Hayek that uh, I didn't know existed Uh, scathing about his reactions to to New York because this is New York City in the 1920s the subway was being built there was noise everywhere. This was when the radio was first invented, so it was blaring from every street corner. According to him, blaring really bad music—not opera, but horrible <laughs> popular tunes. Uh, women were walking around wearing, using makeup for the first time, and dressed as flappers. So these are certainly not the kind of conservative dress he was used to seeing in Vienna in the circles that he ran around in. Uh, he just—he found the whole thing just appalling. And he's able to share his uh, his reactions to uh, to all of it with his uh uh with his family and uh occasionally with his his colleagues some of the letters were to colleagues at at, at the place he had worked before he went uh, went to new york and it's it i think it's actually a very typical uh european reaction uh to a city like New York. I mean, I think m- many people from Europe think that New York is what the United States is, and, uh, and it's a it's a it's a very uh, it's actually very different from the rest of the United States. But in fact, that, that is often and particularly if you look at, at letters from, for example, some of Keynes's uh, uh, community at Cambridge, uh, you know Richard Kahn. You could you could switch the letters of Hayek and Kahn and they would be the exact same sorts of reactions to American society, as it were,
0: American culture. Was it hard to get into contact with the family? I mean, this is for especially historians of economic thought who work on recent economics, and the family relationship, maybe there were some broken families, as you alluded to, or maybe the children are afraid of, or whoever the survivors or the ex-spouse are afraid that the person might be used for some political reason or even depicted to the negative side that they don't want to see and emphasize. Was it hard with with Hayek's family to get into contact and to persuade them to work with you and to give you interviews? So
1: I was in a very lucky position in that um, I had worked on Hayek for a while, uh, starting in the late 1980s, edited two of the volumes in the collected works in the 90s, And then, when Stephen Kresge wanted to step down as editor, I took over the Hayek Collected Works. That had to be approved by Lawrence Hayek uh, as the representative of the the Hayek estate. So I had to talk with him. I met with Christine, his daughter. Uh, So that was when I first was introduced to the family members in my role as the new uh, prospective general editor of the Collected Works. It was always... Uh, intended that the general editor of the Collected Works, when they completed their job, would uh, in fact do a full biography. So this was something that Bartley, Bill Bartley, who was the first general editor uh, who died in 1991, before Hayek even died, uh, uh, was intending to do. And so it was rather natural. So I was in a very fortunate position in that uh, as the general editor of the Collected Works and as someone who was presumed would do the biography, uh, I, could, I could then interview them and, and approach them uh, to, to get the letters. Uh, so I was in a uniquely uh, a good position. Oh, and one
0: supposes then that Hayek, that was of course Hayek's will, if that was already agreed um, during his lifetime. Yeah, I
1: never saw it written down, but that was in my conversations with Bartley when he was alive, but more importantly with Kresge, uh, who who knew Bartley well, uh, and he he just said, well, you know, this would be something that I think was was planned. Um, now, you did raise the question about uh, could there be difficulties and sensitive issues. So certainly, when I talked to Lionel Robbins' daughter uh, Christine Hayek, paved the way for me and said, look, this is a guy who's working on a on a full biography of my father. He's going to want to ask about you know the break that took place between Lionel Robbins and Hayek over the divorce that lasted for about a decade. So, I mean, these are all sensitive issues. So she's clearing, giving permission that, yes, you can talk frankly uh, about these issues. And I should add that Hayek's second wife never wanted, she's also dead, but we Hans-Jörg and I, Uh, did talk to her son, and the son was not very forthcoming, and basically let us know that the mother never wanted to have this biography done, you know, she was the second spouse, she didn't know how she was going to be treated, so there was some of that, people not wanting to really uh, uh, play ball, participate. And so we're going to have only a very sketchy image of her in the biography.
0: Just because you alluded to that, then there was a break in the relationship of Hayek and Robbins because Hayek got a divorce? Uh,
1: Not necessarily because he got a divorce, but because uh, Robbins felt that Hayek did not treat the first Mrs. Hayek properly. So it's all there in the correspondence. It's going to be very difficult to figure out exactly how to tell that story, but we have all the extant correspondence between Hayek and Robbins, and it just gets increasingly testy. Mm -hmm. Um, Hayek thought that he was providing pretty well for his first wife and children. Robbins felt that he wasn't. So when you have that kind of disagreement, Mm -hmm. and also Hayek, because of the legal uh, ramifications, had to be very careful about what he said in his letters, to Robbins or to his wife at the time, because when he, he went to the University of Arkansas and taught there for a semester as if he was t- becoming a resident of Arkansas, and that is what allows you to get the divorce. But his intention was to take a job at the University of Chicago, which is what he ultimately did. But if that were all laid out, then the claims against him could be that he was falsifying. uh, uh, He was falsely living in Arkansas. So he, during the whole period that he's actually doing this, he has to be pretty mum, and he can't reveal all of the details, otherwise it, his wife could end up saying, I'm not going to honor the divorce and he must come back, and he would not get the job at Chicago and wouldn't marry the second wife. And So it was during that period that Robbins, asking for clarity, was not getting any clarity from Hayek and was getting increasingly angry about it. Um, so it's a it's a, compli- it's a messy divorce. Mm-hmm. Many divorces are messy. Some are horribly messy, but I mean, some are not so bad. But this one was messy, and yeah, the they, Hayek long knew that he had made a mistake, uh, and the first wife loved him dearly and did not want to give him up, and so that was the situation, and it was a, and this was a period when divorce was not something that proper people did, or or certainly they did, <laughs> obviously, but. It wasn't something that you want to broadcast and you don't want to have other people know about. So it was was embarrassing for the children. I mean, this is part of why I'm sure they didn't keep the letters, for
0: example. Um,
1: but yeah. all of this will be stuff that I'll I'll try to put together. I don't want to I don't want to give you the whole story, <laughs> because um, then, then you wouldn't want to even want to think about <coughs> buying was, a book.
0: We we already <laughs> talked a bit of it because the the collected works and also the biography was already kind of agreed on before he died. Was Hayek someone who was worried about his legacy? And was he someone who prepared for that? And I'm asking because your your colleague Roy Wallentraub, he Mm -hmm. wrote actually last year in a review essay on Paul Samuelson's historiography. He describes how Samuelson was always aware of that. And I just give a quotation. Samuelson's correspondence files reveal that he was always writing with a view to posterity and his place in the pantheon. Mm-hmm. quotation ends, and also it seems that he, what was coming to the archive, how it was collected or, or, or sorted, and this was already part of preparing how posterity should see him and also how he was writing about his colleagues or his own memories. He was mm-hmm. I had always that in mind, do you see that in Hayek and if so, how do you deal with that? Because this is a living person trying to, I don't know, I wouldn't say falsify, but somehow twist and turn future history.
1: Right. So as far as I can tell, he was very good about providing everything that he had. Uh, Wasn't keeping back materials, for example. He insisted that whoever his biographer be read German. And I think that was so that people would be able to read also his correspondence with his German colleagues, but also his correspondence with his family, the stuff that he had kept. And I think yes, you know, for someone like Hayek, uh, he moved around a lot. So there were, he's, he said this in a, in a letter to someone who asked him about it. He said, every time I made a major move, it required the ruthless uh, uh, culling of my correspondence. So he threw out stuff uh, at various points in time in his life because he just, he had a he always had books large, yeah these were times when people had their own libraries, so he had to get rid of some books too, but <laughs> he had so much that he had to carry with him each time he moved that he he got rid of stuff that way. I don't think it was so much as as uh trying to create through the collection that remained a certain story about himself because frankly although he did get the nobel in the 70s you know, for a long period of time he, he felt that he was not going to be somebody who was important <laughs> you know so he kept he kept correspondence that was important to him you know, professional correspondence for example maybe 20 different uh, boxes of the, his correspondence all have to do with the Montpellier society so he you know he he did Create that so that was something that he kept the records for and it's one of the most complete collections of the Montpelier and stuff is, is his own uh, but yeah I didn't it was not I did not get the sense because Paul Samuelson knew he was brilliant in 1939 you know and he and, and he, he, could, he could look ahead and say you know this is yeah. I'm, I'm the guy you're going to really want to have good documentation on so, so I, I think there are very different figures in that regard
0: but you said the author of the biography needs to speak German. Did you learn German in the I process of writing? Or I did not. I did have a semester
1: of German uh, once I started to become very interested in Hayek uh, when I was a, a professor at UNCG, but I did mention that I have a co-author, yes. Hans-Jörg Klausinger, whose German is quite good. <laughs> of course.
2: <laughs> Before we move away too far from this, I wanted to ask you, if, given your experience with Hayek's family, do you have any advice for people who want to contact the relatives the living relatives of uh, the people that we are working on
1: yeah so i think it really is a case by case basis first of all you should find out if anyone else has done it before and find out what their advice is mm-hmm. sometimes uh that has been the case so beiner's <coughs> daughter was alive and was the person that needed to be approached for permissions to quote from his work so i mean uh I was able to find that out through the grapevine, I think, the shoe list, or there may be other sources if you know somebody else who's worked on a person. Sue Housen was very helpful, for example, in terms of, of Robbins, uh, making connections with Robbins' family. So that would be the first step, see, see who's gone before and find out from them what, what's happening. Um, if you happen to get into a position where you're able to do some interviews, I would Very much recommend that you check out some oral history sites, because they talk about the ways to ask questions, things that are evident once you hear them, but you don't think about before you try to do an interview. If you're sitting in someone's room and they're pointing to something, you might say what they're you should say what they're pointing at, or how big how big is something? You know, someone said, well, about that big. Oh, about the size of a chair, about three by three. These are things that you're not going to be thinking about. You should always have you start out with the date and the person's name and where you're doing the interview and and that and that sort of thing, and uh, try to ask questions. Well, you should go. I I won't try to summarize the things because I won't do a good job. But just go to one of those oral history sites, and they actually have very easy to follow instructions as to how to do a successful or more, make a, an interview more successful more productive be able to actually get answers to questions and what i found with christine she was actually marvelous is uh you just let the person talk and you know, try to prompt and mm-hmm. go further but could you tell me more about that that's yeah just very easy little questions and uh people will will start to talk and it's, at least that was my experience with her Lovely interview. Lovely interview, really.
0: Is there something in your research now on the Hayek biography that really surprised you on Hayek? Something that you were not aware of and that only mm-hmm. your research now or the different sources you tracked that surprised you? So he
1: was, I think, um, more of a bon vivant when he was younger. Danced. Had a great sense of humor in his letters home from New York, I thought. Uh, just so uh, much... Fuller uh, picture of a person than you'd get from his professional correspondence, which was always—it wasn't necessarily always proper—but it was to the point. Yeah, he—he he, would—he would share things. Uh, if you asked him a question, he would try to answer it. I mean, in that sense, I think he's very much like Milton Friedman. I don't know if you—if you've ever looked at his. Uh, 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 correspondence, because people particularly by the time he was in his 70s and 80s, people would be sending him letters, asking about various episodes, and he would answer in very straightforward ways, and I thought okay, that's one that's one view of the person. Another view is his professional correspondence, where he's actually interacting with somebody about some sort of technical issue in economics, or in any of the various fields that he wrote in. You get a different view that way. But he was he was uh, a fuller individual than that. And his reaction to New York also made me i recognize my own Americanness, because I thought, wow, that's really a pretty strong reaction. And I realized, well, of course, that's, that's what a lot of people's reactions are to New York, including Americans, in fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, it's, uh, it's but it, it did give uh, additional dimensions. So I would, I would say that would be an example, sure.
0: And when will the biography be published? <laughs> yes, good question.
1: <laughs> Uh don't know. Is it one volume? It probably will be two. I think we would uh, probably end the first volume uh, with the formation of the Mont Pelerin Society, uh, or just before that. And then the, perhaps the, the second volume would either start with the Mont Pelerin, probably would start with the foundation of the Mont Pelerin Society, so that would be 1947. And that would allow the first volume to have his youth, uh, his trip to New York and then his time at the London School of Economics. And particularly the 30s and into the uh, early 40s, you'll know, get the road to serfdom. So yeah, I think that, w- that, that is what I think our current plan is, to start Volume 2 with the Mont Society, take it forward from there.
0: So okay. when the first volume is out, we'll be happy to have you back and uh, okay. talk more about the content of the okay. biographies. Okay, ha- would
1: be happy to do that. Well, thank you very much.
0: Thank, thank you. Thank you. Let me briefly add one last word. In case you are interested in becoming a visiting fellow yourself at the Hope Center, please note that the deadline for applications for the academic year 2018-19 is January 5, 2018. Juan and I have both been visiting fellows at the Hope Center in 2016 and 2014 respectively. And, full disclosure, we both had a good and very productive time there. Please visit our website www.saturisnonparibus.com .net for links to the Hope Center and more. And you can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook.